Good morning. It is uh, a joy to be with you. Uh, I was I was already happy to, to to come serve you in this way. We'll see if you're happy if, that I came to serve you in this way uh, in about thirty minutes. Um, but uh, all, all I knew coming into this was that uh, Pastor Tolley had been at a, uh, a, a, a committee meeting, which. I know can already be kind of draining. Um, I've just discovered it was the ministerial care uh, committee meeting, and I, I actually chair uh, the pastoral care committee uh, for our presbytery. So I know firsthand um, how at times difficult and and it, as as was mentioned, extensive that work can be. And so thank you for for serving God's people in that way, and uh, and I am so happy that I can hopefully give you some kind of reprieve. Uh, <clears throat> our text today. Is Second Timothy four nine through twenty two. Um, it might seem odd to you uh, that I would come here and do a one off sermon out of Second Timothy. First of all, it's the last letter uh, we have of Paul's, right? And uh, that I would do it from the very end of the last letter of Paul's. Um, I mean, structurally, it would seem like everything should have been leading to this. So so why, why would I jump in here? If you know anything about this book, uh, you know that what has come before in 2 Timothy has been absolutely beautiful. Really, the whole letter is heart-wrenching when, when you understand the context. It's the last uh, letter that Paul's going to write before his execution. At least it's the last one that, that we have. And he sends it to Timothy, who he regards as a son this is Paul pouring out his heart. He's giving Timothy uh, the last written instructions that he ever will. In the letter itself, Paul calls Timothy uh, to come to him. So it does seem they'll speak in person again, or at least they hope to. But as you can imagine, this letter would be emotional for Paul to write and for Timothy to read. If any of you have uh, journals or letters from loved ones who have passed, you know that you, you treasure those deeply. This would have been a, a very emotional letter for Paul to write, a very emotional letter for Timothy to read. And in it, Paul reminds Timothy uh, throughout this letter that he's going to suffer, that suffering is inevitable, but that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ died to reconcile us to God, is good enough to sustain us even in our most difficult and most painful trials. Paul calls Timothy over and over and over again to faithfulness, outlining what it looks like to be faithful in the face of great opposition. And it all leads up to a now famous section where Paul tells Timothy that his life is about to be poured out as an offering to God. And he says those words that we've heard so often. He has fought the fight. He has finished the race. He's kept the faith. Paul has made it to the end. He has done what God set before him. He has followed Christ all the way to his own execution. And and he moves from that, that stirring, that stirring call to faithfulness, to what we're going to read this morning. He moves from that to, to this. He ends his letter, not there, not with that, but, but with what we're about to read. I'll, I'll read this passage, and, and then uh, I'll pray for us. And uh, full disclosure, the prayer I'm going to pray is based on one that John Calvin wrote. Um, that's not just because I like John Calvin, although I do. It's because I think the prayer is, is particularly fitting um, for our text this morning. At our church, I don't, I don't know if you guys do this, but at our church, we stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you would, please humor me and uh, stand as we read this passage. Again, this is 2 Timothy 4, 9-22. through 22. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Please pray with me. Almighty God, grant that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday nor willfully seek darkness and thus lull our minds to sleep. May we we be roused by your words and may we stir, uh, stir ourselves up more and more to fear your name and to present ourselves and all of our pursuits as a sacrifice to you that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your heavenly habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as, uh, as I mentioned right before this, we have one of the most stirring charges in Scripture. Paul calls Timothy to continue preaching the word, even in the midst of adversity, even when it seems like people don't want to hear it. He calls him to press forward when others walk away to not get swept up by his emotions, to endure suffering. And he points to his own life as an example. He is himself about to be poured out as a drink offering. He has done what he now charges Timothy to do. And he prepares himself to receive the inheritance that has been secured by Christ. And honestly, if if I were writing this letter, and probably if most of you were writing this letter, We would end there with that beautiful, poetic, powerful piece of writing about the glory that's awaiting Paul on the other side of his death, about how he's finished his race. It's beautiful. It's moving. It's what we hear it at funerals. People stitch it on pillows. We see it everywhere, right? Put a benediction on that thing and in the letter. But that's not what Paul does. Instead of putting down the pen, he actually ends his letter with what seems at first glance like a list of chores for Timothy. And to be honest with you, it almost feels like kind of a downer uh, that after that passage, he moves to this. It would be easy for us to see this as a sort of epilogue, mostly unrelated to the main body of the letter. Not that we don't recognize its importance. After all, all scripture is God-breathed. We recognize it's important, but my guess is most of us don't typically know what to do with it. In fact, I feel pretty confident that most of us are a little bit unsure of what to do with it. Because the first time I preached this passage, uh, it was when I was in seminary in one of my preaching labs. I went to uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta. I was in a preaching lab taught by Reverend Aaron Messner. 
we all had to preach a passage uh, in 2 Timothy. Uh, and by the time the sign-up sheet got to me, uh, in a room full of men training to be pastors and theologians, this was the only text left. They had all very purposefully avoided it. And then when we took a coffee break, because it was a lengthy class, they admitted as much to me. Yeah, no, we didn't want to touch that. That one's all yours. In spite of the fact that selecting this text would have actually given them the most time to prepare, they, they kind of skipped over it. They, they passed it along. And I get why, because all on its own, it just seems like bare instructions to Timothy. It's hard for us to find anything in here that connects with our lives. It's, it's like it's meant simply to be read as Paul putting some, some feet to what he's charged Timothy to do. Hey, look, I told you to labor, so here's some things you can do for me before I die. But if we were to view this portion of 2 Timothy as an afterthought, or as stuff that really only meant something to Timothy, then we'd be missing out on the whole point of the book. In his typical fashion, Paul landed here very intentionally. Now, I freely admit that structurally this text is a little bit hard to categorize, so instead of giving you like three or four headings or points, um, I'm just going to go verse by verse uh, through each small section, and then then at the end, we're going to bring all that information together. We'll see how all the parts are related in order to come to what I hope is a clear understanding of how this passage works in this book and what it means for us. So if you're one of my note-taking friends and you're looking for some way to order your notes, perhaps the best way to do that is uh, with, with those three categories of, of, of Bible study that maybe you've heard before, observation, interpretation, application. We'll start with observations from, from, the, from the text. We'll bring it all together, and then we'll see what it means for us. So let's start breaking down the parts of this passage to see exactly what God has for us here. We will begin in verses 9 through 12. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So Paul asks Timothy to come soon and to bring Mark with him, not only because he'd like to see him before he dies, but also because uh, he's been left by everyone but Luke, and he he needs help to do some of the things he's going to do. And we want to be careful about our assumptions about these men who have abandoned Paul, and we don't want to read too far into what's being said here. It would be maybe easy in light of the rest of the book to assume that it means that some of those men committed apostasy and they actually abandoned the faith out of fear or for personal gain, but I actually don't think that's the case. Um, Paul, Paul speaks of someone who did that very thing in the very first chapter of this letter, but he describes it very uh, differently. He says, he says that person turned away, and the word he uses is where we get the term apostasy. He doesn't use that same language here. He describes this differently when he talks about being deserted, um, uh, specifically uh, by Demas. Uh, and, and it's not the same. It doesn't seem to be the same thing that he described earlier. right? He describes this in different terms. So although desertion in verse 10 might seem more dramatic to us uh, than turned away, in actuality it probably is the opposite. This is probably not as severe as what he's described before. Um, but the fact that it's not severe, in reality, should resonate more with us. Because while these men might not have committed apostasy, they might not have left the faith, Paul is still very clearly hurt by their absence. Every person in this room, I'm willing to bet, knows exactly what it feels like 
to be abandoned by people that we trust, to be betrayed by people that we, that we trust. We have felt that emotional pain. In the case of Demas, he goes so far as to say that he left because he loved this present world. So the circumstances might even be a little more suspect for him, but it could have been nothing more than, than fear of death that he could avoid. Right? Put yourself in Demas's place. Paul, I love you. I really do. But you're going on trial, and that's going to end with you dying. And they know I'm with you. And I can go labor somewhere else where they don't want to cut my head off. All of a sudden, we can kind of see, you know what? I, I get why this would happen. Why Demas might leave. And why Paul would accuse him of being in love with this present world. But it doesn't necessarily mean he's left the faith. But more to the point, we understand why this still would have hurt Paul. Here he is at his loneliest, at his most afraid, and the people that he's trusted have abandoned him. Luke, however, remained, and, and he has sent uh, Tychicus to Ephesus. So, so Tychicus didn't leave of his own accord. Paul sent him to do something else. And interestingly, as he's calling other men to himself, uh, there's, there's some reconciliation that's happened with Paul and Mark. You might remember that he previously not wanted to travel with Mark, but that relationship has now done a complete 180. Uh, Paul not only wants Mark with him as he's about to face his death, he says he's useful to him for ministry. It's not just to stave off loneliness. He says Mark is actually going to, to be a benefit to me. We have a lot going on here in this group of names. If you're just, again, if we're just making observations, if we're just taking notes, there's a lot that's happening. We're looking right out of the gate at just a mess of complicated relationships, which is pretty par for the course as far as the church is concerned. We have, we have deep history between all of these men, and there's a lot of ministry that's happening among them with Paul and Mark and Luke and Tychicus, maybe even Demas still, uh, certainly with Crescens and Titus. Deep relational bonds, a lot of ministry we know a little bit about, about who each of these guys are, but the picture of the whole passage is still pretty blurry. So let's keep moving. Look with me in verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Paul asks for three things. He's asked for people first, and now he asks for three objects, three things. He asks for his, uh, for his cloak, for books, and for parchments. There's a lot of speculation about what the books and parchments are, it uh, seems most likely that they're probably the scriptures and then things that he can write on. Right? We just saw that he plans on working with Mark when he gets there. He says Mark is useful for ministry. So it seems, it seems actually pretty safe to assume that these are just the tools Paul needs to do that. And what about the cloak? Well, that's a great question. The cloak is probably because it's cold and he's uncomfortable. Right? He's in physical discomfort and the cloak can help. I know it's a stunning insight. I, you never would have gotten there without me. Truly, I have a dizzying intellect. Um, so verse 13, right, it's pretty straightforward. Paul plans on working. He plans on laboring. He needs men to help him, and he needs the tools to do that well. We're starting to get a, a little bit of a better picture of what he's doing here, but it might not be fully in focus yet. It still sort of seems disconnected. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, there's actually an Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy. Uh, now, we're not sure if this is the same Alexander or a different one. Um, it's possible there were two different Alexanders who were giving Paul trouble. Um, 
But whatever this Alexander did, whether or not he's the same guy, although we don't know what it was, uh, it's not unreasonable to think that he might have in some way been connected to Paul being arrested and put on trial. Uh, Because that's exactly what Paul goes into after this. For all we know, he could have been instrumental in the death sentence that Paul is facing. He uses this mention of Alexander to immediately transition into talking about being put on trial. And whatever Alexander did, it seems to be severe. Paul's facing this opposition. And and while he warns Timothy to avoid Alexander, he says, hey, stay away from him, uh, he does it just so that Timothy's ministry isn't unnecessarily hindered. He's not concerned with uh, Timothy avoiding him because of some punishment on Alexander, right? He's an out for revenge. He's entirely sure that God will carry out justice, that God will deal with that matter. He just wants Timothy to be able to labor faithfully. So about halfway through now, we're going to recap for just a moment some of the observations we've made. You might think I'm just saying random things about the text so far. That's fine. I promise I'm going to pull it together. Trust me. Let's recap some of these uh, these observations. Paul has addressed a series of complex relationships, including some very deep relational pain, regarding men he loves and men he has served with. He's called some of his closest friends, including one man that he used to have conflict with, to come to him, both for comfort and for ministry. He's in physical pain. He's warning Timothy who to avoid as he moves forward in his ministry, But he also reminds his son in the faith that God will deal with that man justly. Uh, He he doesn't seem to be concerned, again, with any sort of revenge. And and he he expects Timothy not to be either. He just says, avoid him. You can almost feel the subtext there as a father speaking to his son. Don't get distracted, Timothy. Let God take care of that. Some of you might be starting to see where this is going. I don't know. But for those of you who aren't, let's see what we can pick up in these final two sections. Look in verses 16 through 18 with me. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, one of the reasons I think it's possible that Alexander had something to do with Paul's arrest is that he seamlessly moves directly into the story of his trial. And as he's already mentioned, he stood alone. He says, all deserted him. His friends and allies alike deserted him. Uh, But just like he trusts God to deal with enemies of the gospel, like Alexander... He recognizes that in that moment, God was faithful to strengthen him. God leaves neither his enemies nor his friends to chance. And again, you you, you might catch the subtext here to Timothy. Don't let it be charged against them. Timothy, don't let that stop you from working with them. Timothy, God is at work. It's okay. In fact, Paul says that God used that trial as a way to spread the message of the gospel to the Gentiles so that even then he he, he could proclaim Christ. He actually ties God's faithfulness in his own life to God's faithfulness to Daniel. That's the illusion there. Um, Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. He says God, that he was rescued from the lion's mouth. He's comparing himself to that. He's, he's pointing out God's faithfulness then and tying it to God's faithfulness now. And that's not the only thing he says God rescued him from. That's just the beginning He goes on to say that just as God delivered him before, God will ultimately deliver him from 
every evil thing that is said against him, even death itself. That when, that when God brings Paul into heaven, he will have rescued him from everything. When Paul wrote that death lost its sting, he meant it. Paul's execution will not get the last word regarding his destiny. Christ will. Death can do nothing to Paul that Jesus can't and won't undo. And then finally, verses 19 through 22, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubula sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Lina and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. We end with another list of names. But just like before, these are all names of people who are at work. People who have in the past supported Paul or who are supporting Paul now. Uh, all for the work of proclaiming the gospel. He sends greetings to Prisca and Aquila to the house of Anesiphorus, leaving us to assume he's had some degree of steady contact with all of them. He explains that Erastus is in Corinth and that Trophimus is only in Miletus because he was ill. In other words, he'd probably be somewhere else laboring, but he got sick and he couldn't leave. And he asks, he asks uh, Timothy to get to him soon, before winter. Again, he did ask for his cloak, so that makes sense. And the final names are people who have clearly been in contact with Paul because they're sending greetings to Timothy. And then he ends with a pretty typical benediction. So what do we do with all this? How do we put this all together? I've made a promise to you that it's not just a list of chores, but so far, that's kind of how it sounds. What's actually going on here for Paul, and why is it so important in the book of 2 Timothy? Why has God preserved this for us? Well, first of all, we see Paul clearly suffering, which has been one of the themes of the book, right? If you've read 2 Timothy, that is, that is a theme that runs from beginning to end. He's been abandoned. He was put on trial alone. He was mistreated in some way by Alexander. Uh, he's in physical pain and discomfort. And in case we have forgotten, he is waiting to be killed. There's a lot of suffering happening right now. All this talk about suffering through the, through the letter that he's writing to Timothy, it's not hypothetical for Paul. He's living it. It's not lip service. He knows what it is to be suffering and to, and, to, and to seek to be faithful in it. But more to the point, he, he's running all the way through. Uh, he's finishing his race. He's being faithful all the way to the end. He hasn't stopped working. He's not just sitting in a cell waiting to die. He hasn't considered retirement. And I'm not going to lie to you. This is, I freely admit, this is a weakness in me. But if I'm put on trial and sentenced to execution and I'm sitting... Uh, under arrest, whether it's in my house or in a cell or wherever, I'm already thinking, great, I finished. I made it. But that's not how Paul sees it. As long as he's got breath, he's got work to do. He doesn't see this as the end, just the opposite. He sees this as a reason to keep pushing and to push hard until the very end. He is overseeing where people are serving. Don't you think it's odd he knows where all those people are and what they're doing? He's overseeing where people are serving. He's asking Timothy and Mark to meet him. Remember, not just for, for visits, right, to make him feel better, but for ministry. 
That means that Paul, Luke, Mark, and Timothy would all be together, and Paul would have his copies of the scriptures and stuff to write on. That means that the authors of the overwhelming majority of the New Testament and the recipient of multiple letters of the New Testament were all going to be together in one place. I have a very hard time thinking that they were just chatting about the weather. They were at work. This is a man who wasn't giving up. He wasn't giving in. He's exemplifying the very steadfastness to which he has been calling Timothy throughout this letter. The steadfastness to which he called Timothy in the passage immediately before this. Why didn't Paul end with that stirring passage about how he's, how he's finished the race? He's fought the fight. Because he's proving that he's doing that exact thing. This is him doing it. He's modeling it for Timothy. He's showing him what he needs to do once Paul's gone. Timothy's staring down the barrel of losing someone who's like his father, and Paul is saying, hey, let me show you how to move forward. Let me show you what I expect you to do once I'm not here to guide you anymore. He's reminding him not to get distracted by guys like Alexander, or to get distracted by anger at men who abandon him or who hurt him. I'm keeping at it till they take my head, Timothy, and I want you to do the same. Eyes on the prize. And the gospel's at the very center of it all. What is the motivation Paul has for this kind of grit? Is it just intrinsic to him? Is he just uniquely brave in a way that few other people are? No. He tells us himself in verse 18. Paul's motivation, the thing that that gives him strength, the thing that keeps him pushing to the very end, is that God will rescue Paul from every evil deed that is done to him. And God will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. In Christ, every wicked thing that's done to Paul, every ounce of suffering he faces is made worth it. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has secured Paul's forgiveness. He has emptied sin of its power. He has robbed death of its sting. Jesus Christ has reconciled Paul to God, who is now and always will be faithful to his people, even in suffering. And this is what strengthens Paul to keep fighting all the way to the end, just like he's called Timothy to do. But what does it mean for us? That's great for Paul, but what about me? We have the same gospel Paul does. And surely, like Paul, we can expect to lose relationships, to be betrayed, to face physical discomfort and emotional turmoil. But our sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us because of what Jesus has done for his people. The same gospel that strengthened Paul strengthens you. I mentioned that when I first preached this text, it was in one of my seminary classes. And the professor for that class, I, I said his name, <clears throat> Reverend Aaron Messner, uh, he played football all the way through college. And understand that when I say this, I mean it in truly the most complimentary way I can. If you took all my little league baseball coaches and rolled them into one person and made that person a pastor, that was Reverend Messner. That was his whole, that was how I always felt in his class, right? Um, And just as kind of an example of that, there was a week that my car was in the shop. Now, again, I was at RTS Atlanta, but I was still working in Decatur, so I was doing a lot of driving back and forth. This class was every week. I would drive there. Some weeks I would drive back the same day. And uh, 
And so my car being in the shop is a real problem. My classmates aren't driving three hours out of the way to pick me up. This is before the pandemic, so understand that what I'm about to tell you uh, was unique. He had excused me from class. He told me I didn't have to come. Nothing I could do about that. But I got in touch with one of my classmates who set up a Skype call and put the computer in the front of the room so that I could, uh, I could see and hear all the other guys preaching and uh, I could fill out you know, the forms I had to fill out for every sermon and turn them in to show that I had been listening and all those things. And when uh, Reverend Messner came into the room and he, and he saw me on the screen, he went, that's what I'm talking about! And I heard a chain-link fence rattle in my head. Um, it was like being transported all the way back to Little League, right? That was exactly what it was like. And just being around the guy made me think of sports analogies. So when I was assigned this text, and by God's grace, I figured out what Paul was doing here, how he's, how he's, he's showing, I'm finishing the race, I immediately thought of those Little League days. And if you if you ever played little league baseball, even if you played a day of it, you probably remember this. The first thing they tell you is when you hit the ball and you're running to first, even if you're certain you're going to be safe, you know it. You know it. It doesn't matter. You run all the way through the bag. You don't slow down. You you don't you don't slow to a jog. You run through the bag. And that was the first thing I thought of. Don't slow down. Give it all the way you got through first. Run through the bag. That is what Paul is doing. It's what he's been calling Timothy to do this entire letter. And now it's what he's showing Timothy how to do, and it's what he's called us to do, to run all the way through the bag. Incidentally, um, my read on Reverend Messner was right, because after I preached my sermon and I went to his church's website uh, to see if he'd ever preached on this, and and he had... um, I listened to it to see if there was anything I could learn, and and his central uh, analogy was also a sports... uh, sports illustration, from uh, his football coach telling him to run all the way through the line on sprints, right? And this sort of thing resonates with us, right? We all love a good sports movie, even if we never played sports. Uh, It's why we love the passage immediately before this one. We love the idea of never giving up, of never giving in. There's something profoundly American about that, right? You just fight until the bitter end. We love that. We love the idea of giving it all you got until the bell rings, but we aren't always quite so enamored with what it looks like in practice. It sounds really great. We don't always like how it looks. Finishing our race sounds heroic. It looks daunting. Some recent examples. Uh, when the war first broke out in Ukraine, um, and everybody was sort of keeping up with the news, I was uh, looking into what was going on with some of the missionaries there. And two stories that stuck out to me were, were one of a Baptist pastor who uh, was, was near the capital where a lot of the heavy fighting was. He got his family out of the country. And he's not a national. He could, have, he could have left and stayed gone. But because so many of the men in his congregation remained, he came back to keep pastoring them. With his family's, with his family's blessing, they understood. right? He didn't abandon them. But he came back. The, the first week that, that bombing and, 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 and everything started uh, in Kiev, in the, in the capital, um, the MTW, MTW's Mission to the World, it's, it's our denomination's foreign missions arm, got in contact with our missionary uh, in the capital of Ukraine and said, hey, we can get you out, we can extract you. That, like, this is a wildly different situation than what you signed up for in the first place. Uh, he had been, it, it, was a, <clears throat> it was a Saturday night that he got this uh, uh, email to him, or message somehow, I don't know if it was an email. 
Um, he'd been up all night because there's bombs going off. Apparently, that makes it hard to sleep. And um, the, the, the response that our MTW director got over, over Ukraine uh, from this missionary in Kiev was, <clears throat> no, I've already got a sermon prepared. And if part of the church is still standing and people will gather, I will be there to preach it. But it's, it's not just them, right? There were, in the early days especially, Russian Christians who, believing that this was an unjust taking of life, protested because they believed they had a responsibility to petition their government to end the unjust taking of life. And that often came at great cost to them. You have brothers and sisters in, uh, in places uh, like Yemen and Iraq and Afghanistan, China, North Korea, who, to run their race faithfully, takes them right through the valley of the shadow of death every day, and they run through it with courage. And maybe we will be called to face similar challenges. I don't know. But there are other ways that running all the way through the bag, running through the line, running our race can seem daunting. Because we can hear those stories and think, yeah, that's, that's, that's great, but that's not connecting with my life. That's not what my Tuesday is going to look like. It might look like something else, though. Sometimes running through the bag just means setting aside selfishness to honor our neighbor's preferences and needs above our own. Maybe that will cost you money and time and energy and comfort, and you don't want to give those things up. But that's what running your race faithfully all the way to the end looks like. Maybe it looks like just outdoing one another and showing honor. It could look like pursuing your career with integrity, even when it's hard, even when it might cost you a promotion or a raise or your job altogether. Maybe, maybe running through the bag for you means being faithful with the position God has given you, even if it means losing that position. Maybe it means serving your family when it's difficult, not giving up on, your, on, on, uh, on praying for and evangelizing uh, lost family, family members, uh, not quitting on your marriage, not checking out when it gets hard, not, not coming home from work or, after, or, or being tired after a long day and just sending the kids away and, and not wanting to deal with them. Maybe it means taking all you have left in you and investing in those relationships at a cost to yourself. Maybe that's what running through the bag, running through the line looks like for you. Maybe it's just faithfully engaging in the life of the church. And some of you might very well be thinking right now that I just don't understand your situation. I don't understand what that kind of faithfulness would cost you, how hard it would be. Maybe you're thinking you would prefer to be in a situation where your life would be on the line because the thought of, of, of having to, to be obedient and faithful over a long period of time is a lot scarier. And I just don't get it. And you know what? You're right. I don't know. I don't know what's happening in your life, and I don't know what it will cost you. I don't know how hard it would be. I'll tell you what I do know. I know that if you were in Christ, the same Holy Spirit who is at work in our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, Russia, Yemen, Iraq, China, North Korea, Afghanistan, that same Holy Spirit is at work in you. The same Holy Spirit who is at work in Paul in the midst of all his sufferings, who empowered him to labor diligently to the end is at work in you. I know that your Heavenly Father is as committed to bringing his work in you to completion as he is to finishing his work in all those people. I know that Christ is as committed to rescuing you from every evil deed and bringing you safely into his heavenly kingdom as he is to rescuing them. I know that. 
That's what steals our spine in adversity. It's not something intrinsic in us. It's not just because we're tough enough or strong enough. It's because we know that the triune God refuses to abandon his people. I know that in Christ, you have all the same things that those noble, courageous, heroic brothers and sisters have. That's what I know. I might not know what faithfulness will cost you. I do know the God who was with you in those difficult moments. Whoever abandons you in whatever pain it might bring, whatever consequences you might face, you might face uh, the same Christ who strengthened Paul strengthens you, brothers and sisters, run through the bag. Finish your race. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we confess that we so often look to the courage of our brothers and sisters in other times, in other parts of the world, and we feel weak and unsure because we forget that their courage has come from you. Remind us that we do not run our race by virtue of our own strength, but that we are held up by the work of the Spirit in us, by the love of Christ who redeemed us, who will deliver us from every evil deed. Set our eyes firmly on him, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we might run the race that you've set before us with endurance, whether it ends tomorrow, next year, or decades from now. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who so faithfully sustains us.